This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Hurley. We are an independent news commentary with a California perspective. Season 6, Episode 20. Age Discrimination and Telehealth. A Conversation with Andrew Broderick. Today's episode is our continuing series of interviews with Bay Area leaders. As we approach the first anniversary of the COVID lockdown here in California, we're going to focus on healthcare today. Perhaps no industry has adopted and indeed embraced the video call and Zoom meetings as aggressively as the medical profession has. Over 25 million video doctor visits have taken place in 2020 alone, and that was up from an insignificant number in 2019. But as this digital revolution has gotten underway, the impact on demographic groups has varied widely, but mostly for the good. However, the experience has been somewhat mixed for most seniors as the telehealth revolution begins to unfold. In today's episode, Andrew Broderick, Project Co-Director of the San Francisco Tech Council, will talk about a telehealth summit which took place in San Francisco yesterday, February 11th, and specifically, he'll focus on the impact on the senior community. Good afternoon, Andrew, and welcome to the San Francisco Experience. Good afternoon, Jim, and thank you so much for having me. Andrew, let's start off by hearing a little bit about yourself and your background. Definitely. Uh, As you've introduced me, my name is Andrew Broderick. I am, like most people to San Francisco, a transplant. I arrived here 25 years ago. I have worked at the intersection of technology, strategy, and health for many years, and primarily working on doing research and evaluation with underserved populations, that is, those individuals who are most challenged in many aspects of life, and technology is one of those where we see a digital divide between the underserved or the have-nots and those with more resources who would be categorized as the haves. So I'd like today to share some of my insights and experiences uh, about what's going on with telehealth and older adults uh, in America and San Francisco more specifically. Very good. So, Andrew, please give us your overview of yesterday's summit the major issues that were identified in the discussion, and how senior telehealth is going to evolve. But first, why don't you begin by defining our terms? Is telehealth and telemedicine the same? That's a great question, Jim. I think the best way to answer that first is to say, We do lack a standard nomenclature when referring to the virtual delivery of care. So those terms, telemedicine and telehealth, 
are often used interchangeably, but in many instances, they do not refer to the same thing. And what I mean by that is the use cases can be quite different. Telemedicine is more specifically clinical in focus. To give an example, we have intensive care units, and telemedicine can involve remote monitoring of individuals in ICUs using technology to share data and then to respond to the data that is being reviewed by specialists in a remote location. Telehealth has a broader set of use cases because the individual does not need to be in a clinic setting to take advantage of telehealth. They can be in their home, they can be in another community setting outside of the doctor's office, outside of the hospital setting, outside of the clinic setting. And so telehealth has four main modalities associated with it. One is storm forward, which is basically clinician or healthcare provider exchanging information with another provider. And a good example of that would be when you go for an x-ray, the radiologist will often send that x-ray to another specialist for review and opinion about what they see in that x-ray. And that modality is not real-time. It can be asynchronous, and it can involve people who are quite remote in terms of continent or country or state uh, working simultaneously uh, in reviewing the x-ray in, in the example I gave you. What we're talking about is more the second modality, which is live and interactive video. And in the past few years, this has exploded in many different ways. Uh, but particularly as a result of COVID, a lot of individuals have been forced by necessity to use telehealth and the video capabilities in particular to interact with their provider or doctor um, when they have issues that otherwise they might have gone to the doctor's office uh, to be seen for. The third aspect of telehealth is remote patient monitoring. And these are devices that we are quite familiar with, blood pressure cuffs, pulse monitors, and weighing scales and glucometers. Many of these devices today can now be connected through Wi-Fi or Bluetooth and have the data that they generate in terms of the readings electronically sent to a provider in a remote location while the patient is at home doing the monitoring. And that data can be reviewed. And again, if there's something that is out of range or unusual for the provider, they can then reach back out to the patient. And finally, there are a lot of apps that people use on their phones which are also considered telehealth. And those can be self-management apps to help with chronic conditions, provide education, provide advice and tips, as well as other resources that could be beneficial to the individual when it comes to monitoring their health. Andrew, you've given us a very good 39,000-foot view of the four major modalities between telehealth and telemedicine. And you've certainly clarified a lot of questions for me, and I'm sure you've also clarified questions for our listeners. So that's number one. Number two, medicine in general and telehealth and telemedicine, I'm sure, 
are highly regulated by local, state, and federal regulation, but federal regulation in particular. Explain to me and to our listeners how 2020 represented a revolution in terms of government regulation. In other words, government regulation had to change dramatically in order to accommodate some of the changes that we've seen in telemedicine and telehealth. Talk to us about government regulation and whether now that we're in the closing days of this pandemic, are we going to see a return to the old days of high regulation and less acceptance by government bodies of telehealth and telemedicine? Okay, great question, Jim. Um, I will start by asking, or by, I will start by telling you first about the situation before the pandemic. So prior to COVID, there were certain restrictions around what could be reimbursed. And that typically was determined by the location of the patient, the type of services, the type of providers, and the modality that was used. What happened with COVID, a lot of those restrictions were removed, and suddenly there was an expansion of services that could be provided, the types of providers that could provide them, and the locations where the patient could be when receiving those services. And so I think it is important to highlight what's key here is reimbursement. The capacity to do that before existed, but the reimbursement to get paid at the provider level did not exist. And so what happened with COVID, and again, we're talking about the technology that has been around for decades in terms of the capabilities that telehealth offers, suddenly exploded overnight. And we went from virtually a small number of uh, or volume of telehealth encounters pre-COVID to suddenly millions, like you indicated in your introduction. And so the much-anticipated, long-promised telehealth revolution was thrust upon us by necessity. And so providers suddenly were able to use telehealth and get paid for telehealth services that they delivered, which is something that they were not getting before COVID. And I think that's a major distinction in terms of what was reimbursable before COVID versus what was reimbursable during COVID. And I think, you know, where we are now is we've seen such a massive kind of expansion of capabilities, which were all introduced by executive order, so they were not permanent. Many of them were temporary as a result of the public health emergency. Uh, There is a lot of discussion that's going on at the moment about keeping a lot of those services plus the reimbursement mechanisms associated with them. I think what's important to understand now is that we don't necessarily have a definitive answer as to which will continue, but we definitely do have the understanding that the genie is out of the bottle and there's no way we're going to go back to a pre-COVID era in terms of volume and what's reimbursable we're definitely going to see a higher volume of encounters through telehealth after we get through this initial COVID era. 
It won't be as high as what we saw originally at the beginning of the pandemic, but it definitely will not be at the levels that existed prior to the pandemic. Andrew, let me let me just jump in there for a moment. Of course, we have a new administration in Washington. And mm-hmm. the Biden administration, of course, and its predecessor, the Obama administration, was very active in creating Obamacare and uh, with the federal government playing a significant role in health care. Obviously, too early to say whether these executive orders that were taken by the Trump administration to essentially free up the telehealth and telemedicine industry. Is there any early indication that with um, the Biden administration that most of these will be kept or the bulk of them will be kept? Any any sense there? Why can't, why, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And it looks like what we've got, what we have now as a result of COVID is actually working to our benefit. I agree totally. I think uh, what has happened with COVID, just before I get to answering specifically your question, is because we were by necessity forced to use telehealth in many instances where we did not before, people have suddenly been introduced to the notion of telehealth and they have the experience of having used telehealth. I think that is going to be a major factor because Prior to this, a lot of people did not have that experience in terms of a video visit with their doctor, for example. Mm -hmm. Now that they have that, they understand the benefit, the convenience that it brings to their personal life. I've heard clinicians talk about the fact that they enjoy the televisit encounter by video because it gives them the opportunity to look into somebody's life. They see them at home. They see the Mm -hmm. way that they live their life at home, which... They don't get when they come to the office. Very interesting. The second, uh, second part of this is a lot of what we're using telemonitoring or tele, sorry, visits for in terms of video encounters is really for chronic disease management. And in many instances, we do not need to go to the doctor for management of those conditions. A lot of it can be done remotely. And so I think that's another factor in terms of thinking from a policy perspective, other benefits of continuing to use telehealth? Definitely, because I think it's a model of care delivery that is well suited to where we're spending most of our dollars on healthcare and where we're trying to improve the outcomes of those health conditions that many people are dealing with in their everyday life. I think it's important to point out a lot of people think health is a substitute for normal care. Uh, I think we need to look at it more as a aspect of care delivery supplements the in-person visit. It's not going to replace it, but it's definitely going to complement it. And it can be the frequency which we go to our doctor's office to be seen. Now, one of the one of the great challenges that we faced uh, in the American healthcare industry over the last number of decades is the super high cost of it, and how it continues to consume a bigger and bigger piece of the national uh, GDP. Hopefully, 
telemedicine and telehealth should be cheaper than in person. Is that right? Cheaper. I mean, we're getting somewhat similar rates from an in-person visit. Looking at distribution is getting more data. So, Andrew, tell me, um, you know, once again, telehealth has got to be cheaper, right? You're, you're correct there, Jim. It is cheaper. Let's look at it from the clinician or the provider perspective. They're getting reimbursed at rates similar or comparable to what they would get for an in-person visit. So there's no change really on that level. On the consumer level, they don't have to spend time going to a doctor's office to be seen. They have the convenience of just doing it from home. So there's a lot of kind of benefits that are non-financial in terms of uh, the cost involved. But if you look at the psychic kind of aspects of, you know, the benefits that people get as a result of that, those are quite large. Okay. I, Let's move on to, let's talk a little bit about the, um, about uh, seniors and, you know, seniors, uh, of course, geriatrics is a much understudied area of medicine and seniors, of course, have higher incidence of deafness. Dexterity isn't what it should be. Uh, mobility isn't what it should be. Uh, all of those, uh, all of those issues that come with age are going to impact a senior's ability to function at, at a high level with technology. Talk to me a little bit about that. What kind of technology, what kind of technological aids are out there to enhance the senior's experience with technology in telehealth and telemedicine? Yeah, well, there's kind of different levels to this. Overall, is technology well designed for individuals of an older age is because of the very reasons that you've just laid out there? Typically, no is the answer. It's, you know, a lot of technology is not designed for them to be usable or accessible. Uh, so that's one factor that we do have, you know, thinking about more universal de design standards that should be introduced into technology. But talking about some of the limitations that older individuals have when it comes to technologies such as hearing impairment or physical dexterity or mobility issues, those can make it quite challenging in terms of just interaction with the technology device. And so with telehealth, we heard at our summit yesterday how some providers are introducing closed captioning. So people who are hard of hearing can read what's written or being said at that same time, which makes it easier to understand, to follow the clinician as that kind of encounter and interaction is taking place. We heard from one of the technology providers at yesterday's summit, Grandpad, how they have enhanced the speakers on their tablet device because of the hearing limitations of their older adult users. So there are ways that we can make technology more accessible for individuals. There are different software or tools that people can use if they do have 
limitations in their ability to benefit from the technology, but they're not universal. And in many instances, you have to buy a very specialized device or you have to buy additional software or devices that augment the performance of the device that you're using so that you can hear clearly or that you can interact more effectively with that device. There's some hearing aids, for example. I heard about one hearing aid that is able to simultaneously translate into 27 languages. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so if you think in our city of San Francisco, where we have a significant population that are coming from other countries, English is not their first language. And as they get older, having these kind of hearing aids remove the language barrier. And this is like non-technological, but you can imagine in a telehealth encounter, if you are of limited English proficiency and you're talking to a provider who only speaks English, your ability to understand and comprehend what's being said to you is going to be quite limited unless you have somebody there to translate for you. Mm -hmm. So that's another example of assistive technology that could be integrated with a device or a telehealth encounter to make it more effective. Now, we've, we're talking about devices, enhancement of devices, whether it's hearing aids or tablets or laptops or smartphones. But let's remember, we have so many poor seniors in San Francisco that uh most of them don't have access to these devices. So that now brings us on to the issue of digital equity. Talk to me a little bit about that. We had earlier in the conversation, we talked about the 100,000 San Franciscans out of a population of 900,000, 100,000 San Franciscans who do not have access to broadband, who do not have access to the internet. And if they don't have access to broadband and to the internet, how are they going to avail themselves of this brave new world of telehealth and telemedicine? Well, that's a great question. Um, as you know, I'm a co-director of the San Francisco Tech Council, which was formed for the very reason um, to advance digital inclusion for older adults and people with disabilities because of the fact that many of them are being overlooked when it comes to allocating resources to meet their needs when it comes to technology. And when, what are their needs? There are three levels to it. One is, can they afford internet access at home? And that 100,000 figure you mentioned refers to San Francisco's population, about 12% of our population do not have reliable internet access at home. And that is typically a cost reason associated with that is they cannot afford it. The second level is a lot of people do not have access to a device. And that is a limiting factor in itself because then, you know, they are compromised in today's area where many older adults are at home. They are isolated. They need technology now, not just to go participate in a medical visit, but to connect with family and friends. And so the third element of the digital divide is digital literacy. They have the skills to independently 
be able to use technology effectively. Let's talk about let's talk okay. about digital literacy, particularly among mm. the senior population. Of course, we've had a year of lockdown. We've had a year of isolation, being isolated in our homes, our apartments. Um, how do we address that issue of digital literacy among seniors who have their own particular challenges to begin with, whether it's hearing, limited sight, et cetera, et cetera, and then put this layer of lockdown, COVID lockdown on top of that. How are you folks addressing that issue of digital literacy for seniors? Well, it's an ongoing challenge, and it one, it's one that requires a lot of innovative approaches to the problem, because before COVID, we would just refer people to go to computer labs to get that in-person training. Uh, with COVID, a lot of organizations that had computer labs are now trying to pivot to virtual programming. But as you point out, how can you do that if somebody doesn't even have the skills to participate in a virtual class? Mm -hmm. So the other challenge is, can we send somebody to the home who can then sit down with that individual, show them how to set up a device, how to go online, how to participate in a class? That comes with its own challenges in terms of the risk that may be posed to the individual bringing somebody into the home. So there's a lot of challenges. No one really has the ideal solution to that yet. And there are many organizations, I would just say, trialing different ways to do that. But I think it's something we're going to see more and more in terms of new innovative ways of training older adults remotely, preferably remotely, but in ways that you know, we can do that. So there are other kind of modalities that it happens today. If an older adult lives in a intergeneration, multi-generational household, you know, they can have a younger member of that household teach them. But if you're living alone, that's where yes. the problem comes. That's where the problem comes. And, and, and just to bring up why, why it's important uh, from a system level is so many individual seniors living at home on their own are at risk of social isolation. Yes. And with that come a lot of the kind of mental health kind of uh, adverse impacts associated with being alone and isolated. And it's well established in the evidence that leads to kind of physical health mm -hmm. deterioration. So there really is a kind of whole continuum here. If we don't deal with social isolation, it'll just open up a cascade of, you know, worsening health and mm -hmm. then worsening costs associated with managing that health. Which of course is not, which of course is something that we don't want. And Andrew, as we come into the final few minutes here of our, um, of our conversation, mm -hmm. share with us your, your vision, your view of how 2021 is going to unfold in this area of telehealth and telemedicine particularly for seniors here in San Francisco, are there, are, there any, uh, are, are there any great new events on the horizon that we can look forward to? Well, I think what it has raised everybody's awareness. And I think it's important for the industry, the technology industry, to pay more attention because I think this is a great opportunity for them to think about how they design better products and I, I, and I think we're starting to see more and more of that. 
You know, I'm having a conversation with Google at the moment, and we're talking about ways that we can do better mapping of data in communities to understand what the needs are in those communities and then target resources more specifically to those communities where we're seeing disparities, greater disparities. I think uh, there's opportunities to think about how we can build more AI into products. And so, for example, in California, the Department of Aging is about to distribute thousands of devices that they've got that are smart voice devices from Google, iPads from Apple to seniors. So I think getting devices to seniors is something that we're going to see more of. Uh, There obviously is going to be the training and support that has to go with that and the different ways that's happening. So I think that's where we are now because the need is so great. And I think through that, we're going to see more seniors coming online and getting access to the services that they need. Well, listen, Andrew, uh, I wanted to end on a positive note. And essentially <laughs> what, you've, what you've outlined here is the possibility of Christmas in July. So um, <laughs> I want to thank our guest, Andrew Broderick of the San Francisco Tech Council for outlining both the challenges that the healthcare industry faces and some great opportunities in achieving an efficient adoption of telemedicine and telehealth practices here in California. Thank you very much, Andrew. And Thank you, Jim. And I look forward to following up with you later in the year, maybe around July, as those devices are distributed <laughs> to our um, to our seniors here in San Francisco to see what the reaction is and what the uptake is like. Please take a moment. Very good. For my listeners, I'd like you to please take a moment to visit our website, www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com and subscribe. It's free. And by subscribing, you'll receive future episodes directly to your inbox. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, reporting from America's favorite city, San Francisco.